0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here today with Patrick Wendell. He's the release manager of Apache Spark and co-founder of Databricks. And full disclosure, I am a technical advisor to Databricks. So welcome to the Data Show, Patrick.
1: Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Ben.
0: So first off, before we actually uh, dive into Spark and big data, so Patrick is also a keen observer of the big data scene, so we'll talk about that as well. Let's talk a little bit about your background. So your co-founder Matei Zaharia was joining programming contests early on when he was young. So were you also uh, a prodigy when it comes to computing?
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'd say prodigy exactly, but um, I've been interested in computing since a yeah, co- fairly young age. I think uh, um, kind of around middle school age, became really interested in computers and was always programming and had kind of side projects going on. And then as I matured in my education, it became more and more formalized. And, you know, here I am today.
0: So computer science, what's your major from the get go?
1: It was. So, I I took a a few computer science classes in high school. Uh, Luckily, I had access to a a computer science course then, and I I went to Princeton University for my undergrad and was a major in computer science uh, at Princeton as my kind of official major.
0: So, your uh, undergraduate work in Princeton kind of is somewhat related to what you ended up doing at Amplab, correct?
1: Yeah, a little bit. So I got quite into research uh, even as an undergrad. I had some uh, some faculty I enjoyed working with a lot at Princeton, and I was always into distributed systems. You know, solving uh, problems with very large scale systems. Uh, at the time, what I was more interested in was kind of uh, networked systems. So so sort of systems distributed over the internet and various challenges that arise uh, with that. I, I did a bunch of research on doing sort of load balancing. So this is balancing traffic across across servers in a network of maybe hundreds or thousands of global servers uh, in what's called a content distribution network. So this is networks that host a lot of data. So I was way into that. I, I actually was lucky to publish a couple of papers as an undergrad, and that got me into this general research area. Um, I then went on to Berkeley to do well, a PhD. Wait, so what, uh, go about, ahead.
0: what about as an undergrad? Were you guys aware of, and were you using Hadoop?
1: Yeah, so I did use Hadoop a little bit as an undergrad. It was just starting to come up uh, around that time. And I played around with Hadoop, uh, didn't get to Spark quite yet. It, it, was, it was too new. But I, I did use Hadoop for some of my analysis.
0: I see. So, so I guess uh, when I look at the Princeton faculty, right, so you got people in security, machine learning, so a lot, lot of things to choose from. So how did you gravitate towards this particular area? <laughs>
1: Yeah, there was a couple of faculty in the networking and distributed systems area, um, specifically uh, Mike Friedman and Jennifer Rexford. They're both uh, they're both still there, and they were great mentors to me. I, I had taken their classes and kind of expressed some interest in research. And uh, the rest is sort of history. I, I spent a lot of time as an undergrad doing research in those areas. Right, right. So and then and then now then you ended up in Berkeley. Yep. I, so I, I took a trip across the country. I'm actually from San Francisco originally. So I was happy to be back in the Bay Area. Um, and at Berkeley, you know, the research group I entered was the one in which uh, you know Jan Stoica was my advisor. And uh, they were focused quite a lot on uh, big data, you know, on, on Spark and on building the next generation of systems in this space. So Spark and Mesos were already... <laughs> Yep, the Mesos project was actually uh, a fairly mature when I got there. I remember I saw Matei give the Mesos talk. Uh, this was when I was being recruited to Berkeley, and I thought, oh man, this guy seems pretty smart, so maybe I should go and work with this guy. Um, and, uh, and I did end up going to Berkeley. Mesos was kind of a finishing up at that point, but Matei was working on a new thing, Spark, and I ended up getting started with that project kind of halfway through my first year at Berkeley. So what version of Spark would that have been? Oh, geez. So I think I started working on Spark 0.6, which I'm pretty sure was the second version that ever existed. There was a very initial release called Spark 0.5. Um, but I remember Matea asked me for 0.7 he said hey, we should do like a more formal release management process. And uh, I was wondering Patrick if you'd help with that. And uh, so I did kind of help design the way we do releases in Spark and I've actually been managing releases now ever since then now you know two and a half years down the line. That's funny
0: because I think I started using Spark as 0.5. So you referred to it as like the first uh, public release, huh?
1: Yeah, I think 0.5, confusingly, was like, I think the first really release that they packaged up and delivered to the wild. At that point, it was very much a research project.
0: So, how much, so at that point, how much uh, were you involved in kind of uh, designing and speculating about the roadmap of Spark?
1: Yeah, so so a lot of my research at, at Berkeley focused on optimizing scheduling, uh, and that was how I, I sort of got involved in Spark, is w- when you have a system where it's overall very efficient, Spark was much more efficient than some earlier systems that we compared it to, like Hadoop MapReduce, um, scheduling tasks actually becomes a big bottleneck. You know, not even doing any work, just deciding which tasks will launch on which machines. Uh, if you have a, a very efficient engine where it can execute code quickly, that becomes uh, starts to become a bottleneck. So a lot of my work was focused on improving that in Spark. uh, And there was a a follow-on research project uh, that related to that. And uh, some optimizations I worked on did end up going into Spark. So I started from sort of the more low-level scheduling details. And then I just got more and more interested in Spark overall and kind of what was going on from a user perspective, uh, being able to use kind of the the nicer APIs we provide in Spark. So so I ended up getting involved in many other areas of the project.
0: By the way, at that point, uh, when Spark was very much still in in cons in cons in, uh, amp lab. so how were they uh, planning kind of features in uh, in the roadmap? Was that uh, a bunch of students sitting in a room or
1: yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So a lot of it was uh, just brainstorming meetings in the amp lab and you know for sure Matei played a very uh, active leadership role around spark but you know we were really trying to solve research problems so we were trying to work with the early users of spark getting feedback on you know what what issues they had and, and what types of problems they were trying to solve with spark and then uh, and then use that to influence the roadmap so it was it was definitely a more informal process but uh, from the very beginning you know we were extremely user driven in the way we thought about Building Spark, uh, which is quite different than a lot of other open source projects. You know, we never really built it for our own use. It's not like we were at a company solving a problem and then we we decided, hey, let's like let other people use this code for free. Uh, we actually like from the beginning were focused on empowering other people and building platforms for other developers. So I always thought that was quite unique about Spark.
0: Well, there was also, I guess, there was also in, somewhat informed by uh, Eon's experience at Conviva, right? <laughs>
1: Absolutely. So one of the early users was Conviva. This is a company that does analytics for real time video distribution. And, uh, and they've been a a very early user of Spark. They continue to use it today. Uh, and a lot of their, um, you know, feedback was incorporated into our roadmap, especially around kind of what types of APIs did they want to have that would make data processing really simple for them. And, you know, of course, performance was a big issue for, from, for them very early on, because in uh, the business of optimizing real time video streams, you want to be able to react really quickly when, uh, when conditions change. Like, for instance, you know, a network has a temporary outage, and uh, their job is to help route around it so that users don't experience any issues with their video. You know, they're watching a video, they want it to be contiguous. So, so pretty early on, things like latency and, uh, and performance were, were pretty important.
0: So was it uh, true early on that you basically had all of these boxes that now make up the Spark ecosystem But basically they weren't built yet. You know, we know we're going to need a SQL layer. We know we're going to need streaming. We know we're going to need machine learning.
1: Yeah. So I think it's, a, that's a great question. Early on, we, we really had just Spark core. That was the lowest level API. I mean, it was still very high level compared to other alternatives that were out there at the time. But, um, I think it was when Spark streaming came along, which was really the first high level component that we started to think about Spark as a general engine that's useful for a wide variety of workloads. Um, that theme hadn't really that, hit us. Is that true? Is the Spark streaming before Shark? You know, I'm trying to remember. It was a long time ago, but I do think. They were either right around the same time, or Spark Streaming was earlier. Right. Um, I, I, when the paper was published is different. I think the Spark Streaming paper was published uh, only like a year after we had worked on it. So, so we had been working on it already for a long time. But I, I do remember after one or two of the earliest high level libraries, we kind of started to think, hey, you know, this is a broadly useful set of lower level abstractions, and you know, maybe the real value in Spark is not even going to be this lower level thing, uh, which already many people were excited about. But it's going to be this kind of ecosystem of libraries. And, and that clicked only a year or two into the project, I would say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, actually I was in the first Spark streaming talk uh, <laughs> at a meetup. And, yeah, and, uh, that was a long time ago. It was amazing the, re, the reaction of the people, right? So they were like, oh, so when is this going to be available? Are, are you kidding me? Right? So I can do batch and streaming using the same tool?
1: Yeah, and I, I think that was motivated a lot by the work with Conviva. So that company had built a totally uh, from scratch proprietary real-time stack that was designed to do this like really quick um, sort of routing of of work of, of network flows related to video. And, uh, and they had invested just literally, I mean, millions of dollars worth of engineering effort. This had been a multi-year project. And maintaining that real-time stack uh, and then also having a totally separate sort of Hadoop's and then and then eventually Spark-based stack for their offline analytics. That was a, a real, real pain for them. So, um, so that influenced a lot of the early design of Spark Streaming, where we said, "Hey, look, can we have one stack with one set of you know definitions of things like metrics and and uh, you know statistics over my data, and then use that for both the offline and the online component?"
0: You know, I was talking to someone a, a week ago, and I was saying, you know, if you were to look at Spark now and and uh, not have known about it until now. Uh, you know you would think that it was really designed for data scientists because now you have data frames SQL right so things that uh, uh, make it very usable for uh, Python people in particular so I think actually the, the combination of data frame and PySpark and of course the growing number of algorithms in, in MLLive will make Python uh, users really uh, consider using Spark from the get go because you can run it from in your laptop
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you touch on a couple of themes there. I think in general, in Spark, we are trying to make every release of Spark accessible to more users, and that means giving people super easy to use APIs, APIs in familiar languages like Python, and APIs that are callable without a lot of effort. So, you know, I remember when we when we started Spark, we were super excited because you could write K-means clustering in like ten lines of code, and to do the same thing in Hadoop, you know, you had to write you know three hundred lines. Of various interfaces and stuff, it was really clunky. And the Spark implementation was shorter and it ran a lot faster. And that was even in the original Spark paper, the RDD paper, you know, several years ago. As we the project has evolved, you know, we kind of realized, look, this is great that you can write k-means in a few lines of code. But how many people out there want to write a k-means clustering implementation on their own? Right? No one wants to do that. One really smart person can do that, and then uh, we can let everyone else just call k-means. Let's just make a library with machine machine learning and statistics functions, and then other people can just call it. Um, so so this is kind of how we thought about the project as it's moved forward, is let's embrace a wide variety of users and give them sort of APIs that are higher and higher level and get closer to just solving the problem that they have without them worrying about too much the underlying details.
0: So I started using Spark as a Python user at version 0.5, and obviously there was no PySpark. I had to learn Scala. I was a persistent, but then I, I liked Scala, and then PySpark came out and I kind of ignored it. And I kind of underestimated actually uh, the popularity of it, right? So actually PySpark seems like uh, uh, one of those things that's really made Spark take off.
1: Yeah, it's a great point, and and even we didn't anticipate either its popularity. I, I remember Josh Rosen, uh, who I work with closely now at Databricks, he wrote the first version of PySpark, and uh, we put it out there thinking, you know, hey, I'm sure there's users who really prefer Python over a JVM language, and you know, maybe some people start playing around with it. Well, if you look today, there's almost as much usage of PySpark as Spark's Scala API. Um, it's just a, a hugely popular language. Uh, people who are familiar with Python find PySpark very Easy to use and a natural extension of writing sort of single-node Python programs. So, uh, so that's like really blown me away. And uh, and to meet that demand, we've we've spent a lot of effort optimizing and improving the robustness and performance of PySpark. It's been a major theme over the last year. Uh, with the new DataFrames API, it also gives a huge performance improvements to, to Python as well. So, um, so definitely, you know, I anticipate. Uh, I, I could easily see a time when most Spark users are running Python, which is a crazy thought since the core engine is still written on the JVM.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we, uh, for listeners out there, actually, I have a regular webcast with Patrick whenever uh, there's a major release of Spark that comes out. Um, and in one of these webcasts, I think you basically introduced the uh, API, Spark Streaming for PySpark,
1: right? Yes yeah, i so was
0: taken aback by the amount, the reaction of the people <laughs> how happy they were Right.
1: So, yeah, you know, and it was kind of the last major uh, uh, pillar that hadn't fallen where we had some disparity in the Python and and Java Scala APIs. Um, so obviously, like a lot of people are super excited to see that. Um, you know, now there's almost perfect parity between all of the APIs, which is great because then people who have a preference for a particular language they don't have to choose. You know, some one set of features versus another. They just get kind of get everything.
0: Although I would say that the our users. Feel a little neglected, but that's going to change, I believe, in the next release, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so kind of uh, the next major API for Spark is this API called Spark R Um, that was merged into master branch uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, it's going to be present in the the 1.4 release of Spark. So, this is uh, what we saw as a very important part of of embracing the data science community. Um, R is just becoming, you know, it's already very popular and and actually growing rather quickly in terms of popularity for various statistical uh, processing and we wanted to give people a really nice first-class way of using R uh, with with Spark. So so once your R problem becomes bigger than you can fit on one machine, you know you can point it at ML using familiar R APIs and uh, get access to a lot of goodness that's inside of Spark.
0: And actually, the uh, people may not know this, that but there are companies that have built uh, on top of uh, Spark R, including Alterix. So actually, there's. Uh, a whole class of business users who are using... Spark without actually even knowing that they're using Spark.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we have actually there's many, many companies that have applications that embed Spark or, or are based on Spark. And all Tricks is a little ahead of the curve because they've been writing an app that's based on Spark R. When Spark R has uh, only very recently been merged into Spark, they've uh, they've contributed a lot to its development. So, uh, so that's definitely cool to see increasingly, you know, people using Spark without even knowing that they're using Spark. I think that's kind of the the ultimate end goal when you're writing a, a lower level platform is you almost like want the platform to disappear and people to just think about the problem they're solving and you know they're not having to think too hard about data distribution and scheduling and all of these kind of ugly things underneath
0: so let's talk a little bit about the community so in in a few weeks there will be a community gathering which is uh, the main spark summit Uh, there's a spark summit in new york and that was great but i think uh, this one coming up is going to be bigger
1: uh, yeah, yeah, we're we're really excited about a Spark Summit. Um, you know, West. I guess you would say it's just the default Spark Summit that occurs out in the Bay Area. Uh, it, we'll we'll see exactly what attendance we get, but I think it's likely to be the kind of biggest Spark Summit ever. And these conferences are just a great chance for us to catch up with the community. Spark is quite a decentralized project. Of course, at Databricks, we're you know we're leading the effort, but there's many many companies and many many contributors actually all around the world. So this the Spark Summits are just our our chance to kind of interact with the community get feedback talk about new initiatives uh and and it's just a real treat for me personally uh since i you know obviously invest a lot of my life in spark
0: so i i i'm on the community committee program committee but i only see a snapshot of the proposals thank god because i don't (laughs) want to review that many proposals i have my own conferences um but uh, so what are you excited about? Any, uh, what are the kind of the themes that you uh, have been able to tease out just from uh, looking at the proposals and the program itself?
1: Yeah, so I took a look at it uh, right before this this little chat, and, and a couple of different things stuck out at me. So so one theme is um, it's great to see a lot of effort from uh, from other companies that are taking a real stake in Spark development. You know, as I mentioned, at Databricks, of course, we're we're doing a lot of the work, but um, there's uh, there's multiple companies presenting who are who are sort of actively involved in development of Spark as well, and who are taking significant uh, a significant role in the development community. So uh, TypeSafe, for instance, is going to talk about some. Work they're doing with uh, with Mesos, um, Intel, who's been like a longtime collaborator on Spark, is going to talk about a lot of benchmarking and performance initiatives they've been doing. Uh, uh, Cloudera will be there talking about a few different uh, topics on things they've contributed to Spark, and uh, and MapR is also there talking about their uh, their work with Spark streaming. So uh, so I guess like the the first theme I would uh, call out is just that it really is a community conference, and um, and it's going to be exciting to just hear from all of the different kind of committers. And developers from from many different companies. Now, of course, having said that, I, I, I can't help but but maybe pitch some of the Databricks talks because you know we do put a lot of effort into having good talks at these things, and it's a great way for the community to kind of see from the thought leaders and the major developers in uh, in the Spark community what's next. Uh, so, so of those, um, one that's uh, that's. Going to be quite exciting, would be uh, Michael Armbrecht's talk on data frames. This is a, a huge new API in Spark. Uh, we can talk about it a little bit later if we're going to talk about kind of roadmap stuff. Um, and uh, and Michael uh, gives great, kind of deep technical talks. Uh, so there will be a, a really nice technical overview of, of that feature. And uh, and TD, uh, um, who is the head on Spark Streaming, is also going to be giving a, a really nice talk about kind of roadmap and futures for Spark Streaming. Um, I had thought of uh, uh, so, so yeah, I guess that's the theme of kind of hearing a little bit about the roadmap and what's coming.
0: The, um, uh, so, one thing that uh, I wanted to point out to listeners is actually at uh, Strata Plus Hadoop World in San Jose, TD stock on the state of Spark Streaming was uh, by far the largest uh, session. <laughs> that that wasn't a keynote or a tutorial. It was it was packed, and actually it was funny because I tried to I wanted to talk to him, and it took maybe a good ten or fifteen minutes for the room to. So that I could get to
1: him. He's a very popular man these days, but I I think it it just shows a lot of broad interest in streaming, and uh, it's an area where people are dying to know what's coming next in Spark. And so, you know, it's very natural to have all that excitement. Um, And and I guess the last, uh, the last theme I wanted to to point out. Uh, was really an increased focus on use cases. I mean, Spark is becoming more mature now. We have you know hundreds, hundreds of production deployments, and uh, we're trying to really highlight and surface those in these community conferences as well. You know, this is first and foremost a developer conference, but it's also nice to see kind of what value are people getting out of Spark, and uh, maybe provide some guidelines for those who are considering their own deployments of Spark. Uh, so a couple that had stuck out at me there, and there's really uh, too many to to mention them all. Uh, wh- one is a, a major effort around Spark SQL at Microsoft. This is a, a large internal deployment they're doing of Spark SQL, actually running on Mesos uh, on fairly large uh, clusters, and they're going to talk a lot about how kind of they're getting value from Spark SQL and how they use it to kind of turn around and act as an internal analytics service for uh, major parts of the company.
0: That, the second that might have been the first sentence I've heard, which used uh, Spark. Mesos and Microsoft in the same. Kind
1: of <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, uh, uh, crazy thought, but this is an internal team at Microsoft, and they—they they are, uh, you know, the, the company overall is getting a lot more um, uh, embracing of open source technologies. And this particular team is using uh, using Spark SQL on Mesos, um, but uh, yeah, on Windows, which is uh, uh, quite an interesting. Uh, De- deployment um, the other one I had I had just seen that that was notable uh, was from Airbnb and it's from their demand prediction team so you can imagine Airbnb they're trying to always understand you know where they're gonna have more demand for um, for you know uh, people to stay and they actually use mllib and and they, they do a lot of, uh, uh, of modeling of this using spark so uh, so that looked like a, a particularly cool talk to check out um, but I'm sure a lot of the the use case talks will be interesting we'll have to see uh, how they go
0: so what's the what's your take on the uh, uh, spark spark packages org <laughs> there are some interesting packages already I mean so it's not a it's not a big repository yet but there's some interesting packages in there.
1: Yeah, you know, Spark packages is something we uh, we've been hosting at Databricks as a kind of community initiative to develop a really strong standard library. And uh, and there's I think there's more than fifty packages on there today. Uh, although we still consider it very so early days. Is
0: it uh, so? Do you guys curate that? I mean, so or can anyone just submit?
1: Yeah. So so we do some basic verifications, like we make sure that the thing can. Uh, has the correct license format and we make sure that like we do some basic sanity checks around it but by and large it's it's a fairly open thing so you know pretty much anyone can add their package and there's kind of community driven curation of the packages so there's like ratings and comments and stuff like that and basically the 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 really good packages tend to bubble up to the top in that way
0: all right so the other thing i wanted to highlight is china Uh, because i'm fascinated by the fact that the the it seems like the largest spark clusters in production are in china and uh this this uh is particularly interesting to me because uh we are with strata and hadoop world going to singapore in december so um (laughs) but china so what's up with china and spark
1: (laughs) Yeah, so it's really interesting. So, so Spark actually, from very early days, has been quite an international project. Um, you know, really not only in the users, but also in the developers and committers. Uh, if you ever look at the commit history for Spark, it's like around the clock because we have people working in almost every time zone. Uh, so, I, I did the little tally before this this uh, this chat, and I think we have five committers on Spark who are active who are uh, from you know uh, Chinese citizens. So, we have a lot of People from China involved in the development of the project, and uh, and that's really the the result of the fact that a lot of companies in China use Spark, and so they're of course trying to you know add features and uh, and add fixes and whatnot. But uh, compared with other projects I've worked on, Spark is is quite international, uh, even beyond China. But China is definitely the most active country outside of the United States. So um, yeah, so I, I was trying to, to look it, a little. It pro-
0: bit... It probably doesn't hurt that you had two. Uh, Chinese citizens from the beginning, Reynolds and Hy.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a huge part of it, to be honest. Uh, Reynolds is like famous on uh, Weibo, which is the Chinese uh, Twitter equivalent, and I even have a, a fledgling Weibo account myself. Although I think I've tweeted like one thing in the entire history, but um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, R- Reynolds is like very uh, active in kind of evangelism and and uh, and community building in China, and that's of course been a, a huge part of it.
0: So what what are some of these big examples from China that you know?
1: Yeah, so so a couple of companies that uh, have done a lot with Spark. So one is Tencent. I think uh, they hold the record for the largest ever Spark cluster. I think they ran Spark uh, uh, sort of doing some benchmarking on like 8,000 notes, I think uh, is the number. Don't quote me on that. It's in a talk by Reynolds Shin, but, uh, but I believe that was the exact number.
0: Yeah, no, they gave that same talk as in <laughs> San Jose in China.
1: Yeah, great. So um, so that is true. Good. Uh, yeah, so so they're uh, they're one of the largest scale users. And uh, it's really interesting. You know, uh, people tend to have maybe a somewhat American-centric view when they think about kind of Silicon Valley and uh, early adopters. But these companies in China are, are in many ways uh, uh, clearly at the, the very uh, le- bleeding edge as some of the earliest large-scale deployments of Spark and uh, have contributed a lot back to Spark based on their uh, experience. Another one that comes to mind on the Databricks blog, uh, uh, fairly recently, we, we posted a guest post from Huawei. So, they are using some really cool stuff in MLlib to essentially, uh, it's from a telecommunication division of Huawei. So, they, they have large uh, uh, telco networks, and th- these networks have tons and tons of data on them, like terabytes of data every second. What they're trying to do is find kind of hotspots in the network, or uh, sort of subpaths or routers that are congested, so that they can go and sort of alleviate the congestion and add more hardware. And that's a, a quite complex modeling problem. You have uh, these these graphs with you know maybe thousands of edges in them, and and, and a lot of uh, subpaths. So what they're using in MLlib is something called a uh, uh, frequency pattern matching. I believe that's the exact technical term. But they're trying to find essentially hotspots or subpatterns in these communication paths that are uh, potential congestion points in the network so they've actually added that feature to MLlib it will ship in spark 1.4 but uh, it's cool to see these like very uh, um, sort of neat and and somewhat sci-fi u- use cases of spark uh, going on and, and a lot of it's coming from China a couple of other companies that are a little bit involved or actually are involved quite a bit is uh, Alibaba they have a bunch of people that have contributed to spark and from fairly early days Intel China uh, has been very active in spark uh, they have have uh, a bunch of extremely active developers and and they actually in turn work with a lot of these other Chinese companies because they're a chip maker that sells to kind of Huawei and these other companies. So that's a little bit of a, chi- a roundup of what's going on in spark in China but uh, it's definitely a, a very active part of the spark community and one that we uh, we totally embrace.
0: Yeah Alibaba has some crazy use case around <laughs> graphics.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think they do very large-scale graph computation as well. I, I don't have uh, in the tip of my head uh, what the, the stuff they've been working on most recently.
0: So obviously you were a grad student, the lapsed PhD, but at least came out with a master's degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you probably follow things outside of Spark as well, right? So trends in big data. So what, what is capturing your interest at the moment besides Spark?
1: Yeah, of course. There's a lot going on. Uh, and there, there's. Uh, it's a great time to be in big data. What, what can I say? I mean, uh, storage costs are at an all-time low, and that continues to drive big data deployments. Um, you know, more and more companies are really investing in big data as a strategy, and that's great to see because um, you know it just increases the availability of these technologies. Many, many people are interested in them. I think a couple of specific trends that uh, that I've seen, and these are ones that do affect Spark. So I, I don't know if your question was about maybe ones outside of the Spark regime. But um, but we've definitely seen more and more interest in kind of data science and uh, a perspective on data management that is not so focused on traditional kind of RDBMS data warehousing. Uh, uh, that's something we uh, just see more and more of is companies hiring data scientists and not just um, you know uh, uh, SQL DBAs and, and SQL data analysts. It doesn't mean that SQL is going anywhere. It's, it's huge and still growing. But uh, more and more you see companies where they want to interact with their data using Things like notebooks, uh, rather than a, a traditional BI tool, and that's something that you know with Databricks Cloud and, and the company that we're building, we're, we're kind of really trying to service that uh, that market, that that product area.
0: Um, what about uh, cloud? Yeah,
1: so that's another one. Um,
0: so obviously, you guys bet on the cloud, but actually, I've also been talking to uh, other companies that uh, are either considering or already doing analytics on in the cloud, and it seems like. Just in the last two years, more and more companies are open to doing that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we've really reached a tipping point. If you look at some of the numbers about growth of S three uh, storage on AWS, it's just monumental, exponent, like exponential growth over the last few years. And uh, what, what's interesting is just more and more, even fairly traditional companies are migrating significant workloads to the cloud. One nice thing is that analytics tends to be one of the earliest workloads that gets migrated because you know operational databases, this kind of stuff, that's uh, a little bit harder to move. You know, there's a lot of um, you know sort of different constraints. But analytical, like, uh, uh, historical data and so forth, that's often a lot easier from a kind of governance, data governance perspective for companies to move. So, uh, so you've seen like huge, huge trends and, and a major thing fueling that is the price wars between the major cloud providers. You know, it's not just an Amazon uh, world anymore. You have Azure, you have Google Compute, you have Rackspace, and they're all fighting with each other to kind of decrease prices. That's starting to look very attractive to uh, companies who are making major infrastructure investments.
0: So definitely, uh, at least uh, from the very get-go, the first amp camp, set you up with an Amazon a- ami right so are there as, are there tools now that make it easy for people to use spark on these other cloud platforms
1: yeah it's a great question and, and just to, to go off script a little bit I the amp lab was one of the very very first users of AWS we were kind of the early adopters and it was great for us in a research setting because you know we don't want to invest in like large piece of hardware infrastructure but we do want to run large-scale experiments so being able to have elasticity is great I remember material told me a story uh, Like he told me this guy almost a year ago he ran one of the first MapReduce jobs on AWS he was doing some research around Hadoop he was working on Hadoop scheduling and um, uh, they, during MapReduce there's this big thing called a shuffle where a lot of data wow. moves back and forth and they called him he got a physical phone call from the engineers at Amazon because this was way smaller fish these days there weren't that many clusters and they said hey man w- w- are you like running some virus or something you know you're moving all this data between all the machines like we've never really Seen this before? What's going on? And uh, I had a huge kick out of that when Matei told me that story. That was the very beginning of someone running big data analysis on AWS. Now, fast forward, you know, six years later, and uh, Elastic MapReduce, which is uh, Amazon's hosted MapReduce, is like generating millions, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of revenue for them. So, um, kind of funny to, to think about that historical perspective. Uh, now, your question, which I, I veered severely off topic from, was uh, about. Uh, other cloud providers and how people run Spark on those is that is that right? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. So, so one thing in Spark packages, funny that we were mentioning it before, is scripts for running Spark on Azure and Google Compute Engine. These are maintained by a, a company called Sigmoid Analytics. They do consulting around Spark, yep. and um, and so you've definitely seen more and more people deploying Spark in a wide variety of environments, and and those two are a good example.
0: So do do you or the Spark people or Databricks or you personally, do you guys uh, pay attention to GPUs and...
1: Yeah, you know it's it's a great question, and and where that really has relevance for Spark is around MLlib. Um, GPUs are do, are good at doing things that can be uh, a really nicely vectorized and parallelized, and are CPU intensive. Um, so so the kind of sweet spot for that in Spark is really around numerical processing. Uh, so there's some ongoing efforts right now in MLlib to see for certain things like matrix multiplication, uh, can we offload this to GPU efficiently? There's some, some challenges there technically around kind of um, uh, transferring memory to GPU memory from the CPU and stuff like that they're not GPUs are not known for being easy to program but when you can express your problem in terms of them it's a huge benefit benefit so uh, so that's a, an ongoing effort in mllib uh, and may eventually percolate to other areas of spark as well
0: so let's close with a little peek into the future uh, so a few weeks out from spark summit um, let's talk about version 1.4 and version 1.5.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So just around uh, the time uh, of this uh, podcast, you'll start to see Spark 1.4. The exact release date is not known, so I'm not going to promise that it will be released yet. But, um, but Spark 1.4 is uh, is a huge release with a bunch of different stuff. Uh, one area that continues to grow a lot is the data frame API in Spark. Uh, so this is something that came out in 1.3. Uh, it's a, it's an API that's focused on Providing a slightly more structured, concise analysis of data, just a, a very sort of thin extension on top of the core Spark APIs, but lets us do a lot of cool optimization under the hood because we have a little bit more semantics about what's happening with the data. Um, so 1.4 ships the beginning of a bunch of internal optimizations to uh, significantly improve performance based on data frames. And that is a theme that will continue in, uh, in 1.5. Some other stuff going on around Spark is uh, the MLlib Pipelines API is uh, is kind of our new uh, way of writing machine learning um, uh, programs. That uh, API is slowly stabilizing, so that means it will become you know totally public, supported, stable API that we won't change anymore. And there's some minor cleanup and stuff in 1.4, and I think uh, we'll fully stabilize it most likely in Spark 1.5. And part of kind of finalizing that API is adding a bunch of other transformers and utility functions that exist in Scikit-learn and other uh, similar ML frameworks. And, uh, no, uh,
0: go and ahead. Of course, you have you have to talk about deep learning. Everyone's asking about deep learning.
1: Yeah, yeah. So deep learning is like uh, the hot topic right now. We have uh, an exploration into that going on, actually, by uh, Reza Zadeh, who's a, a Stanford professor who's long time been working on Spark and uh, and works uh, at Databricks as well as a consultant. Um, yeah, so he's starting to look into it. I think the initial uh, deliverable is just some support for standard neural nets, but uh, but deep learning is definitely on the horizon. That may be more kind of the Spark one point six timeframe, but uh, but we're definitely kind of deciding which which subsets of functionality can we support nicely inside of Spark? And, and we've heard the very clear user demand for that.
0: So what about Spark streaming uh, in, the short, in the near future?
1: Yeah, so Spark Streaming is, is uh, shipping a bunch of new stuff. A, a major uh, area for 1.4 is around kind of instrumentation and visualization. So now we have a lot of people using Spark Streaming. And uh, and once you have it up and running in production, you know you really want deep visualization into what's going on. Uh, streaming programs are, are difficult to operate. It's just a, a, a lot more challenging than operating a program that uh, is going to run once. And uh, so we're adding a lot of kind of slick UI stuff for Spark Streaming, like a way to visually see the. Sort of uh, processing time over a, a long time horizon, and pinpoint where things are going wrong or where there's uh, bursts of data, and so forth. And and that's a great segue to talk about actually a broader kind of visualization and debugging initiative that's happening in Spark. Uh, overall, and that's going to be a, a lot of cool stuff in one four, and then even more along those lines in one five. But the idea is to give people sort of really nice ways to visualize and uh, and visually debug Spark programs. Um, you know, Spark has this nice high level API, but sometimes if you're an advanced user or you're trying to debug something, you want to get like a lot of visibility into what's actually going on inside of the the distributed engine. And uh, so this this and the next release will have uh, a bunch of kind of pretty UI uh, graphical representations of of Spark workflows uh, to let people debug them. Those are always fun features because users, you know, users clearly uh, get excited about them when they see something pretty. They can click and pan and zoom in and stuff, stuff like that.
0: So um, Spark Streaming already works well with Kafka. I imagine it's probably already working well. If not in the near future, it will with Kinesis, Amazon Kinesis. What about uh, Go- uh, on the Google gla- Cloud platform? They have the equivalent of Uh, Of Kafka, right?
1: Yeah. So, uh, so I'm not personally super familiar with the kind of streaming component in Google's uh, compute platform. They they have their own uh, streaming engine, MillWheel. That's uh, that's very well known.
0: uh, Do you guys uh, work with the Google Cloud team at all?
1: Right now, we don't have a formal relationship with them. I know they. Um, there are people, many people using Spark on uh, on Google Compute. I think uh, Databricks, the company, is starting to look at uh, new cloud providers since we're running on AWS. But from day one, we've always wanted to operate on multiple providers, and uh, Google Compute is obviously in the very short list uh, there. But in terms of uh, the kind of upstream Spark project, we don't have tons of formal interaction right now with Google Google Compute Engine. But I know a lot of people run on it.
0: Uh, Spark SQL in the future Any other optimizations? Like uh, one thing that uh, uh, From the old Amplab days Blink TV, is is that dead?
1: No, it's not dead. Actually, there's a talk about BlinkDB at the uh, at the Spark Summit, which I, I didn't mention. But I had, there's another theme of kind of research talks, and that's one of the most exciting ones. Um, no, it's not dead. I, I think uh, probably won't be around in the next one or two releases. Right now, we're focused for Spark SQL really on just performance, 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 because it tends to be what people care about for uh, SQL workloads. And uh, but this kind of um, for those who aren't familiar, BlinkDB is is a sampling uh, approach. So this says like, hey. You know, no matter how perf- high performance my engine is, if I need to scan a terabyte of data to answer my query, it's going to be slow, right? I mean, even if you're reading from memory. So BlinkDB does some really intelligent subsampling, and that is for sure ending up in Spark. I think the timeline is probably more like one point six time frame. So maybe in uh, another one or two releases, that's maybe six months out. But uh, that is absolutely something we plan to add to Spark. It's just a little more uh, in the research stage right now.
0: So when you say Spark SQL performance, 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 uh, so for a for a manager, IT manager, uh, what is the goal of Spark SQL? How fast do you guys want to be? Do you want to be as fast as Redshift or?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I think. Um we do have our sights set. I mean, the bar we set is that we love Spark SQL to be competitive with totally specialized SQL engines, and that includes things like Redshift. Now, that's a challenge because those things are mature and they're also specifically designed for SQL performance. So we may not, you know, hit exactly the parity with something like Redshift, but we we want to be at least by far the fastest SQL engine that's on the JVM that's written in, in Java, and we basically want to make it so that you know no one ever decides that they need to kind of build a custom solution. Around SQL because Spark SQL isn't fast enough. the The whole mission we have with Spark is we want to give you one engine that can be used for a wide variety of workloads. It, it may mean that we're not the absolute optimal for any individual workload, but we're quite close to optimal in every case. And you only have to learn and deploy one thing. So, kind of consistent with that strategy in Spark SQL, we're trying to kind of go after the big dogs, traditional data warehousing and so forth. You know, there's a lot of optimizations in those databases. It'll take time to get there, and we may never be, you know, exactly performance. Comparative compared with with a system that is only designed to do exactly one thing, and it's you know a certain subset of SQL query processing. But we definitely want to make it you know orders of magnitude faster than it is today.
0: There is one component that's there's one box that doesn't exist yet in the Spark ecosystem, and uh, I'm not sure it ever will be uh, part of the ecosystem. But search.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question so what what spark has tended to stay away from is things that involve storage so you know we're really more of a processing engine and the the search problem is really like a storage and serving problem it's about how do I index and store a large amount of data sets and quickly be able to sort of respond uh, to queries for those data sets so what spark is doing now around search is actually we're working on interact inter- interacting and being able to load data from search systems so there's there's a really cool library that connects spark with Elasticsearch. Uh, some of the folks at Elasticsearch are working on that. They're using the, the the sort of Spark SQL data frame API, and they're one of the most uh, advanced connectors that we have right now. So for us, people may use us to do things like PageRank as part of generating a search index. We're probably outside of scope for like storing a search index because that's just more of a storage problem. And in Spark, you know, we're really at the processing layer and we're kind of agnostic to storage.
0: Actually, uh, you reminded me of something which is... Uh... Obviously, uh, people associate Spark with Hadoop, but it's, a, it's being used by people outside of the Hadoop uh, world, including people who use Cassandra, S3, um, Elasticsearch. So as someone who is at the front line of interacting with Spark users, uh, are there a significant number of people in, who fall in that bucket?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we, we see it firsthand at Databricks Cloud because a lot of our customers are running Spark in Databricks Cloud. They're uh, they're running on Amazon you know, with data stored in S3. And uh, and they really uh, don't use any components that are traditionally in what would be considered like the Hadoop package or bundle. Um, you know, of course, we, we want Spark to work well with Hadoop and uh, and we've invested a lot of effort to make it work well on things like Yarn and working in partnership with Cloudera, Hortonworks and the Hadoop companies. But, uh, but Spark definitely has a, a much broader Story to tell as a, a general processing engine that can be used in many types of environments with things like shared storage and you know S three using uh, no no data stores um, you know u- using it with more of a sort of data scientist uh, uh, exploratory um, angle and we just we aren't really sort of part of the Hadoop ecosystem in that sense I think it's a little bit more of its own thing
0: and actually from the very early days. Uh, People in the Cassandra community were making uh, Spark work with Cassandra. Yeah, that was Even before DataStax did.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, when we Databricks now has a a, a formal partnership with DataStax. The names are quite similar, so it's always kind of funny in our meetings. But um, but uh, yeah, so when we partnered with them, the first thing they did was look around and say, "Hey, wow, there's a lot of people who are using these two together. Uh, let's like make it official." And so you know now now they have an official connector for Spark, and uh, and we help them maintain that and and work a lot with them. They also have a distribution of Spark that they can give to their customers. But uh, but in that Case you know the cool thing about open source is uh, the developers can really lead the charge and drive the product direction and uh, and data data stacks looked around and and saw the developers voting with their feet and uh, the next step was to kind of come and, and work with us and formalize something so uh, yeah so that's always fun when that happens
0: great well this has been great and uh, we look forward to the conference in a few weeks and uh, for those of you who want to learn more about. Uh, um, the conference, Patrick? What's the URL?
1: It's just spark-summit.org uh, Let me just double check it. Yep, spark-summit.org and um, you can find everything there about the Spark Summit. We'd love to have you if you come. I'm always there hanging out with people and so are a lot of other Spark uh, community members. So um, definitely check it out. Great. So thank you, Patrick. Thanks, Ben. This was a lot of fun.
0: You can follow Patrick on Twitter at P. Wendell. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or tunein.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.